Uh, my name's Rick. Uh, I'm a pastor in Kansas City. I'm a longtime friend of my good buddy, Dr. Dave Doran. Um, honored and privileged to be here. Uh, he asked a few weeks ago if, um, in addition to the, the two general sessions that I'm going to do, if I would do a workshop on preaching. And uh, I said, sure, I teach expository preaching at um, uh, the Expositor Seminary, which is, has a campus at our church, and also at Midwestern Baptist, which is in Kansas City. Uh, very honored and privileged to do that. But I want to tell you at the very beginning that this, this makes me super nervous. It's, it's similar to what we just heard. What you never, ever, 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 can I add three more evers, ever, ever, ever want to do is have a seminar where you say, this is, a, this is how to preach, and then you preach two hours later, which I'm doing tonight. So uh, I'm going to be held accountable in a, in a terrible way to, to all of this. So uh, I want to tell you that I, let me share with you, I am still, I've been in ministry 42 years, and I, I'm still learning every single week a little bit, something new and new nuances about how to preach. Um, it is a joy beyond description. Uh, I've preached every genre of the Bible, and no matter what genre I preach, I feel like that's my favorite. Worse than that, no matter what I what book I preach, I feel like that's my favorite book right now. So, I'm in Ephesians. Uh, I'm at Sermon 95, beginning chapter six, verse ten. Um, and the, the reason is, I, look, I'm 60, and I, I know that I'm probably not going to do this again in Ephesians. So I'm wanting to kind of squeeze all the juice out of the orange that I can. Uh, but I've also taken a few um, few uh, liberties. Uh, for example, when we did the five twenty-two to thirty-three on marriage, I did twelve weeks on, on that, while connecting all the verses to the obviously to the pericope to the paragraph. Also saying, we're, if we're if God brought us to talk about marriage in the text, we ought to take this time in the church to talk about marriage. Did the same thing with parenting. Did the same thing with with children. That was interesting. Um, I, first time I've ever done this, uh, Paul talks in Ephesians 5, 22 and following first to the wives. And so obviously that was a few weeks on talking to who? You're good. You're fast. <laughs> then he talks to the husbands and that was obviously a few weeks in speaking to who? You're great. Then he, in chapter six, verse one, he says, who? Children. First time ever, I did a whole sermon to kids. Because it, it just made sense to me that that's who Paul was talking to. And uh, it was the most intimidating I've, I've uh, been, intimidated I've been, I think, in my entire ministry. Um, and uh, especially when you're asking for some engagement. Kid, if you ask kids a rhetorical question, they don't take it as rhetorical. <laughs> they will answer you uh, very quickly. Uh, so, but what's been a joy is um, because our, because... Uh, People are so confused on spiritual warfare. Um, I'm getting way in the weeds. We're going to get to preaching proper in a second. Um, two things marked my life about, marked my worldview on, on uh, um, Satan and demons. First of all, I was in junior high when The Exorcist came out. I never saw it, but I saw the trailer. And that was enough to make me sleep on the floor for three weeks because that, that girl, the bed shook and a demon was after her and it scared me to death. And so that really messed my mind up in thinking about the demonic just by watching the trailer on television. But a few years later in uh, 1985 or six, 
when Frank Peretti's book, This Present Darkness, any of you remember that, old enough to remember that, came out? And that messed me up because basically his premise, his conclusion is, if the Christian prays, the angels win. If the Christian stops praying, the demons are winning. And that's a pretty bad, who's sovereign in that worldview? So I, I, I recognize when I got to seminary, I went to the master's seminary, and I, I remember going into uh, um, uh, angelology and demonology, and every verse was like, oh, 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 I, I didn't know that, I didn't know that, I didn't know that, because my, my worldview had been shaped by unbiblical, so all this, that was a big, long introduction to say, now that we've come to chapter six, verse 10, I, I, last, this last week, I did a whole, before we exposit that passage, I did a ch- uh, sermon last week on a biblical biography of the devil. Uh, the Bible has a lot to say about the devil, and really, it needed to be about 10 weeks, but I did it in one. And then next week, I'm doing a biblical uh, biography of demons. And then when Paul says the devil and demons, we know who we're talking about. We know what we're talking about. The point I'm trying to make about that, all that is what a joy it is to to preach God's word. What a joy it is to shape people's thinking by what God has said and what God has thought. And he's, le- he's left us a book, The Genius of God. Before we get into the seminar, can I show you something that's just so incredibly uh, gracious of God in Exodus chapter 33? Um, this kind of lays the foundation for our exposition. And I think you're going to get a lot of workshops and uh, general sessions about exposition. But in Exodus 33, well, you, you know the setting. Uh, in 32, you have the golden calf. Moses comes back and, uh, well, he goes up the mountain and it's hard not to preach this whole section. He goes up, gets the Ten Commandments, comes, uh, comes down, goes back up the mountain, to, uh, uh, go, goes up to meet with God the first time, comes back down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. Um, he was delayed they, for 40 days. They said he delayed, but they still saw the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night on the mountain. Uh, and he comes back and they're in the middle of a uh, worship celebration to the golden cow. The, um, and what's interesting about that is that um, in, um, yeah, in chapter 32, Moses says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled around Aaron and said to him, come, make us a God who will go before us. Isn't that incredible? Make us a God. Just marinate on that a second. Make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. I love Aaron. Aaron said, tear off the gold rings which are in your ears of your wives. That's not good marital advice. Um, and your son's not good parenting advice. And your daughters, that's, not even helpful there and bring them to me. Then people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears, brought them to Aaron. Aaron, look at this. Aaron took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and he made it into a molten calf. And he said, now listen to this. Not this is a new God. This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You hear what he's doing there? This is the God who delivered you in a cow. It's incredible. Not a new God. We have now captured God and put him in a, into a golden cow. 
Well, you know the story. Moses comes back down in verse 19. He comes near the camp. Um, he saw the, the golden calf, the dancing. Moses' anger burned. He threw the, threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. He's going to need to get some more in a minute. He took the calf, which he'd made, burned it with fire, ground it in powder, scattered it over the surface of the water, made the sons of Israel drink it. Then Moses said to Aaron, wouldn't you like to be a fly on the wall to know about that conversation? You don't have to be because we hear it. What did this people do to you that you've brought such great sin upon them? Now we have one lady in here. Are you a mom? Okay, you've probably heard lots of little ones tell lots of creative additions of the truth to get out of trouble, right? I bet you've never heard one this good. Aaron said, don't let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself, blame shifting, that they are prone to evil. For they said to me, by the way, who made that cow? What did we just read? He made it with his own hand. Make us a God who will go before us for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt. We do not know what is going to become of him. And he and I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire and bam, out came this calf. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's not even a good lie. I mean, that's not even close. God takes away his leading presence. You wonder why they wandered around for 40 years? Because in the they used to have a tornado of cloud that they could follow in the day and at night it turned into a tornado of fire they knew exactly where to go he took it away except he pitched a tent of meeting outside the camp which he would go and meet with the lord and what would happen that presence of the lord would come and stand above the the the, the tent well down in i'm going somewhere with preaching here in a second um um lot down in verse 13 in chapter 33 i pray if let me know your ways that I may come to know you. You know God by knowing his direct, his ways. Um, Moses says uh, he, uh, in verse 18, I pray you show me your glory. Now this is, this is important. Show me your glory. Which sense is he appealing to? Eyes, show me. He wants to see something. Show me your glory. And God said, I myself will make all my tov, goodness and glory being synonyms there. I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will, what's the verb there? Proclaim. Moses said, show me something. God said, I'll tell you something. Pretty significant. He gets this, gets up early the next morning. Chapter 34. Cut some new, uh, I love how the, the humor of God. Cut out for yourself, chapter 34, verse one, two stone tablets like the former ones, um, the ones which you shattered. <laughs> so <laughs> he doesn't say it was bad or good, but Moses got a little upset at the golden calf and shattered them. But here's the thing. He finally takes him, he, he hides him in, we call it the cleft of the rock. It was a fissure. It was a, and the Hebrew, by, by the way, says that God put him in the rock. M my own interpretation of that is that God found a hollow space in, in the rock up on the mountain with a, with a crack that he could see through, put him inside that in a way he couldn't get out. And I'll show you why I think that's the case in a second. Then it says he walks by 
And while he's walking by, what does he do? God puts his hand over Moses' face, walks by, and then shows him what? The afterglow, the after, after uh, glory. Why did he cover Moses' eyes? Because he knew Moses would have looked. I think Moses thought, this may kill me and it's worth it. I'm going to see God. And it was worth it. But here's the thing. He saw the aftermath, the after uh, wake, the, the afterglow of God. And my curiosity is, what did he see? What did it look like? Was it colorful? Was it bright? Was it like the sun, like Revelation 1? What was it like? The Lord descended, verse 5, in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. Then he tells him his character. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, nine evidences of his grace and then one evidence of his judgment at the end. What's the story? Don't miss the fact that God, God has designed his truth to be frozen in time, space, culture, language, grammar, syntax in a book, not a video. And this, Moses saw something, but he doesn't tell us. I mean, when we say, wow, he saw God and God looks kind of like, that wouldn't have helped us. But what God said was what was most important to him and to Moses, and that's what we have recorded. Now, here's the good news. You say, well, I would, would have liked to know what that looked like. What does Paul tell the Corinthians? One day, our faith will be what? We will see it. Until then, our revelation from God is in a book. He proclaimed it to us. He froze it in, a, in time and space. We can interpret this. You guys know the, the illustration. If four people watch a car crash and then they tell it an hour later, you'll have four different versions. And if they tell it the next day, you'll have eight. And if they tell it three weeks later, you have 12 or 15 because it, it morphs. But if you're interpreting something that's been written, the solidarity of interpretation, the, the, and love that it's frozen, not, not, not dead, but it's frozen in time and space and culture and language that we can interpret. So we are preachers. So the question becomes for the preacher, every week <laughs> you get a Bible and then ultimately you're going to have, at least for me, it's my notes on my iPad. How do you get there? Now, uh, just quick survey. How many of you preach or teach every week? All right. How many of you do it once a month? How many of you every, every few months or you, you're preaching occasionally? I'm jealous because <laughs> typically you guys, you get to pick your text. For those of us who do it every week, the text picks us. I just, we don't have a choice. I remember in Romans 4, I was preaching through Romans and I get to Romans 4 and I got to preach a sermon on circumcision. And I remember that week saying, Rapture would be a good, <laughs> good option this week. I, you know, how do I explain this to the ladies and to the kids? You know, you have to explain what it is and you have to use the word foreskin. In pro, and, and I'm like, um, I think the, the title that week was Salvation is Not by Surgery. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and it was a sweet time. And, and what, what was interesting, just a little color on that, there was a lady who came to Christ that Sunday I finished that sermon and walked off and say, said, man, praise God that that's over with. I'm, 
Maybe we don't even put that on the internet. Let's just kind of <laughs> leave that. Um, and uh, it's, God's word is so wonderful and so powerful, and I'm always amazed. But if you're a weekly expositor, especially someone who's going through a book, you don't get to pick the text. The text picks you. But every text that picks you has power and depth and authority and relevance, right? Every, every, every passage is, um, is designed by God to equip the mind and the heart in a specific way. How many of you have ever preached a message that you thought, man, that, I laid an egg, that's bad, and there was no chicken hashed. It was bad. I'm just, and, and someone says, oh, the Lord really used that. Or even worse, when, when someone says, oh, when you were talking about this, that was so powerful, and you go, I don't think I said anything about it. <laughs> I'm glad for you. <laughs> All right, look for a moment with me at 1 Timothy, and we're going to get into this, this chart and talk about the journey from exposition to exegesis to exposition. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, we're going to begin here. While you're turning there, let me explain the high altitude of uh, this chart that you have. You should have gotten a copy of, that you'll, you'll have a copy of. And um, also, um, just a methodology we're going to be looking at. Um, this is, like I said, I, I teach expository preaching, I teach homiletics. This is something I've used for over 30 years. This is not original with me. The, the, well, the way it's phrased is probably original, but I have seen this with Ramish Richard and Danny Aiken and David Helm uh, and Haddon Robinson. So please don't, I'm not taking credit for this process but because I think it's a process that every expositor is, is, is familiar with and, and has an understanding of. So I'm gonna go over the whole thing in just about two minutes and then just go back and catch the blocks a little bit more in depth. What we're doing when we're doing exegesis is, let's start at the bottom. We're moving from the historical to the contemporary. We're moving from something that happened or something that was said in the past to what relevance does it have to the people I'm speaking to, right? We're also moving from the particular to the universal. Paul told the, uh, uh, the Corinthians that they should uh, honor the Lord by X, Y, Z for 16 chapters. Well, what principle does that particular instruction have universally for the Corinthians and for us, for me, right? That's the goal. And then we're moving obviously from something that happened in the past and things that were written in the past to what relevance does it have in, in the present? That's the, 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 those are the kind of the time stamps of what we're doing. Now, before we get into the, into the uh, pyramid itself, the, this left side is, is the hermeneutics, how we interpret the scriptures. The right side is homiletics, what we say in a sermon. This left side is exegesis, dealing with the details of the text, what it says and what it means, what it meant by what it said. And then the exposition, which is what we're going to say about to the people about it. The left side is it's coming to grips with what the text meant. The right side for the people is what the text means. Spoiler alert, the text can never mean what the text never meant. Those have to be the same. And then lastly, this is the science and this is the art. If I assigned all of you, okay, I'm, I wanna give you all an assignment. You're gonna go next week and uh, come back next week with a, a, a diagram, an outline and a sermon manuscript 
of Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 on Paul's instruction to husbands and wives. And, and you probably all do it. My suspicion is you all would come to the same general conclusions, I hope. I hope we, because we're at this conference, we share a similar hermeneutic, literal, historical, grammatical, contextual, and we can apply that. We would land at the same places. But how you phrase it, there's, a, there's an art. I mean, have you heard of the same text preached by, preached by Alistair Begg or John MacArthur or Chuck Swindoll? And they say the same things, but they say it a little differently, right? That's what Phillips Brooks calls uh, preaching uh, truth through personality. So there is an art side and a science side. So what, what the goal is, is we start here and we go to the top of the pyramid and we come down. But notice this. Everything on the hermeneutical, exegetical side has a corresponding uh, uh, block on the other side of the pyramid. So we're going to start with personal preparation. We're going to end with personal assimilation. We're going to start with analyzing the text content so that we can synthesize the sermon's content. We're going to get the sermon's text structure so we know the sermon structure, the text intent, the sermon's intent. But at the top, the thing we're looking for most is the timeless truth of a text. What was true in this text that was the author's intent for that audience to understand, grasp, and apply, that should be the same for us. Even though the specific application uh, wasn't the same. If, if, if a woman, now I'm, I don't wanna get into, step on anybody's skirts of anybody's sermon, let's say it that way. But uh, if, if what Paul was saying about head coverings in 1 Corinthians might be applied differently than today. He was saying that you, and if you believe in head coverings, that, that's great. Just remember that it's head coverings, not hair coverings. It's not a doily. You, it covered everything but the, but the eyes in the ancient Near East uh, for worship services. So let's be consistent. If we're gonna do head coverings, there is a word for hair. He uses it earlier and talks about the, long, the length of a, of, a, of a woman's hair and, and a man's hair, but I digress. Um, uh, but the point is, what's the timeless truth? What was he telling the Corinthians about a woman's glory and a woman's submission and a woman's honor and a woman's modesty that would apply to us? So you're finding the timeless truth that would apply to them and to us from, from that text. So uh, let, let's talk about, about this process. Now, let, let me give you a footnote. Uh, I mean, I do this every week of my life. And so I have a confession about it. And that is, I wish, I so wish that I started in this block and I finished that part. And then I went to this block and I finished that part. And I wish to this and I finished that part. I find that my mind is bouncing around this chart all week. In other words, I may be early in the process and have a great illustration that's gonna find itself in the, but, but I still wanna check these boxes to make sure that I'm, doing the, the work that we just heard about um, and giving the text its due. So I start with personal preparation and so should you. What's personal preparation? First Timothy chapter four, verse 16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these two things, in these things. How important is it? For as you do this, you will ensure salvation. This is salvifically important both for yourselves and those who hear you. You know what Paul is saying? Personal preparation is so important that if you don't do it properly, you may be wrong on the gospel. That's pretty powerful. 
you will ensure salvation for yourself and for those who hear you? That's, I mean, I've tried every way in the world to make that text say something other than what it's saying, but it's pretty clear. It is salvifically important that you are a prepared man. However, footnote, we know something about how truthful and how powerful the truth of God's word is. And that is in Philippians chapter one, there were some men who were preaching from bad motives. They were preaching against Paul. They were preaching uh, 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 probably proudly, but what does Paul say? But they were preaching the truth. He says, praise God. I mean, I, that, that's a level of humility I'm still uh, aspiring to, right? <laughs> you know, and so Paul says the power is in the truth. Um, one of my best friends uh, was saved uh, after he came home from a drunken stupor and turned on the television mindlessly at 3 a.m. and heard Jim Baker and he gave the gospel and he believed it. Because what Jim Baker said about if you believe Christ and trust in his death for your sin, then you, you can be saved. And he believed it. So I'm not sure he's our favorite expositor. <laughs> but if he told the gospel, God can use that, right? We don't want to talk about how, how do, how do I ask this graciously? Is it fair to say all of us who've been in ministry for any amount of time know someone who was influentially powerful in our life and taught us something who had a moral failure or turned away from the gospel? If you haven't had that experience, let me give you a little bit of a warning. You probably will. Does that mean that everything they taught us was wrong? No, not if it was according to God's word. But our goal is that our message and our lives are congruent, right? So we, we, and so personal preparation, it means that, you know, on um, usually it's Monday afternoon. Mondays are my day off, but I, I typically always, um, a sermon sneaks up on you, doesn't it? I, I, I tell, tell Kim, I have a period of about an hour on Sunday nights when I come home from church and I watch a little bit of Sunday night football it's about, and I really mean this, it's about 90 minutes. It's the only time in the week where I don't feel the pressure of the next sermon. And even then I start feeling it toward halftime. Like, uh, <laughs> it's because you wake up on Monday morning and it's sitting on your chest saying, you know what you owe me on Sunday morning. You, you got to get ready. So, so on Monday I start looking, I, I'm, all, I'm, I'm thinking it through, I'm praying about it. I think there was another seminar some of you guys might've been in earlier where, um, and I don't know, one of my guys, our staff guys in it, said you take some time to plan your preaching. I do that too, where I know where I'm going. So I've, I've kind of got a idea of what I'm, what I'm doing. But this little footnote, when I teach preaching, each of these blocks is two weeks. So it's about four hours of instruction. So I'm gonna be really abbreviating. Uh, this is prayer confession, um, getting your mind right, um, understanding that you're going to preach a message that's going to be higher than you're living at every time. If you wait till, till your sanctification catches up to your preaching, you're never going to preach, right? But also don't, I think you know this, don't get up every week and say, yeah, I don't do a very good job at this. And just like last week and just like next week, I'm a terrible Christian, but yeah, thanks for coming to listen to me. I mean, that's not very compelling, so. <laughs> this is praying, this is preparing, this is getting your heart right. That 
that's important, and I hope I don't have to pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Then we analyze the text content. This is where you actually, you, this, is, this is where I start diagramming. I hope you do at least minimally a block diagram. What's the main subject? What's the main verb? Is it an active verb? Is it a stative verb? What's the predicate? Is it a predicate adjective or a predicate nominative? Um, which is the stative or active verb? Is there a positive? Are there uh, uh, prepositional phrases? What do they, are they adverbial? Are they adjectival? And then uh, everything kind of, I, I diagram it so that I know what's relating to what. And then you know what, what the, the grammar tells you what you need to know about the text. So this is where I'm, I'm doing that. This is also where I, there's an, there's an old saying in ministry, don't ever, 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 as many ever as you can ask, uh, add, ask a woman in your church, are you pregnant, right? <laughs> ask every word in the passage, is it pregnant? There are, now, now what I mean by that is there are pregnant words that, ha, that, that, that demand lexical, deep dive word studies. You also don't, you, you wanna be careful not to do a, what Carson calls, you know, the exegetical fallacy of saying, you know, you overanalyze a word like we would the word butterfly. What, what does that mean? Or, or grape nuts, which is neither grape nor a nut. You know, so don't say, well, these two phrases, but this is where good, le good lexicons will, will help you. Uh, Lagos is, is uh, I've got, you know, BDAG and a bunch of lexicons on my Lagos that will super. So, so you're looking at words. You're also looking at syntax. Syntax matters. What is syntax? The grammar. Um, what's the most famous verse in the Bible? John 3.16. What's the first word of John 3.16? What is it? Four. Do you know that word, verse? Four. Four. You know that John 3.16 is a subordinate clause? So you better know what John 3.15 says. And by the way, it also has a, a following clause in verse 17. So as important as John 3.16 is, it, when you start with word four, it says, I'm leaning on something else for my meaning. So you better find out what that is. The grammar, you start, Romans 12.1 starts with soon, therefore, right? Well, what comes before Romans 11? Well, 10 chapters comes before, or, um, um, uh, I don't want to chase this rabbit, but for example, in Philippians, it says, um, uh, at the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, uh, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And you say, well, the name that everyone will bow at is, is the name Jesus. I, I love the name Jesus. I sing about it, but it's not the name Jesus. It would be in a positive. It, he would say, at the name Jesus, every, it says that the name, it's, a, pre, it's a, a genitive of possession for you Greeks. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. You say, what name is that? Go to the end of the verse. That Jesus is Lord. Isaiah 43 says, only God is the Lord, that Jesus is God. That's the name that everyone will bow at, that he's the Lord God. Now, I, let's keep our songs about Jesus. I, I love that. But the grammar matters. There's a possessive there. There's a genitive of possessive that matters there. And it's screaming that Jesus has a name everyone will bow to. And the end of the sentence says it's the name Lord. Um, so this is where seeing what, what does the text 
say. Then we're getting into exposing the structure. Now that I've seen the diagram and the words and the fact that um, um, this is a participle, not a verb, this is, and this is where if you know the Greek, it really helps you to get the, the, the more exacting, precise understanding of, of, of the grammatical syntax. Um, so I come away after this with an outline of the text. That's the structure. So that, now this is important. I want you to try to visualize this. These top three blocks apprehend the text intent, identify the timeless truth, isolate the sermon intent. They ought to sound really similar, but here's what I teach the, uh, our seminary students. This is a past tense sentence. It's in the past, it's particular, it's historical. This is a present tense, and this is the bridge. Let me explain what I mean. Let's say you're doing Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. And um, by the way, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 on marriage and the gospel is the only reciprocating analogy in the New Testament. A reciprocating analogy means Usually you say uh, like a simile or a, a, a metaphor. Something is like this and the, the illustration goes one way. Paul doesn't do that with marriage. He says marriage actually illustrates the gospel. But what? The gospel also illustrates marriage. So that by the last three verses, you say, well, I'm, I'm talking about the gospel. Nevertheless, let a man, I mean, he just bounces back and forth. So they're both illustrating the, in, in the other. So if I was doing this, I'm being really high level, past tense, I would, what's the text intent? I would say something like, and I want to write it down in my own notes. I always have it so that I can see it clearly in the past. Paul was instructing the Ephesians that there is a reciprocating analogy between marriage and the gospel. That's the text intent. And I got there from my understanding the intent, the, the content and the structure. What's the timeless truth? There is a corresponding illustrative analogous relationship between marriage and the gospel. See here, here how that's generic? So that my, my sermon's intent is, and this is gonna be my proposition based on my structure because I'm gonna come right in this. Um, there are two ways marriage and the gospel illustrate each other. What's my structure? Well, I got it from the, from the text. Uh, first is um, trusting submission the wife to her husband, the church to Christ. Second is loving leadership, Christ to uh, the church, husband to his wife. Just two, now there's gonna be a lot of substructure as you might imagine what those passages. But, but do, do you see what just happened there? Paul told the Ephesians that there's a corresponding relationship between the gospel and marriage. The timeless truth, there is a corresponding relationship between the gospel and marriage. Sermon's intent, here are two ways the gospel and marriage illustrate each other. Trusting leadership, uh, trusting submission, and um, um, loving leadership. So that's my my outline for my sermon. So just again, we're going really fast, but do you understand that path so far? So here's let's be practical. This is usually uh, three quarters of a day for me, the left side. Usually Tuesday afternoon and um, up through lunch on Wednesday. I start working on this side, the sermon side, um, Wednesday night, uh, Wednesday afternoon actually, and then into um, uh, Thursday and Friday. 
But synthesizing the sermon's content, this is where you're taking everything that you've studied and starting to do sermon notes. Here's the challenge. Here's the problem. Um, Think of the sermon as taking all that you've studied to Disneyland. And you've got a five-passenger Nissan Altima. You got 15 kids. You can't take it all. If you let me just tell you, if you study correctly, you get to synthesize in the sermon's content and you realize I can't, I can't say everything that 15 commentaries have said or that I've discovered. So you're always making decisions that so what helps you make that decision? We're gonna talk about this in tomorrow's general uh, session. It's you don't only know the text, you know your audience. Um, I might preach Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 differently to our church than I would if I was at summer camp with our kids, our, our youth. Same principle, same text, but illustrations would be different, applications would be different, depth would be different. Um, you know, to our church, it was here's who to be and how to do it. For the students, it would be, here's the kind of husband you want to develop. Into, there's the kind of man you want to be to be a good husband, a kind of woman you want to be to be, to be a great wife. Um, so the, the audience, your, your audience is always going to, you exegete your audience to say, what am I including and what am I excluding? But you're, I think if you've preached for very long, you would admit you're always making decisions of what you're going to include and what you're going to exclude. I don't think I've ever studied for a sermon and been able to say everything that I got from studying that sermon in, in uh, 50 minutes. So, so that at the end, this is really important, you're personally assimilating it. Um, I love what Haddon Robinson says. He says, you, the preacher is the first congregant to his sermon. You hear it before they hear it. You're applying it before they apply it. But here's the... Um, Here's the big reveal, okay? If you really want to personally assimilate, you can't be done on Saturday night. You can't start on Saturday morning. This takes some time noodling it through the week. Footnote, I have to say this. I think this is true. I believe this. I teach this. But there have been a few occasions, outlier occasions in my ministry. Uh, I can think of one when I had um, three people die the same week and we had a wedding that Saturday and I literally did a Saturday night special. I knew I'd I'd kind of messed around with the text, but it it was literally a a no sleep all night or Saturday night. There are, there, it's very possible that that's going to happen in your, in your life and your ministry, but that ought to be an outlier and not, (laughs) not how it works every week. Uh, so I'm always careful when I say, you got to start assimilating it on Wednesday. Well, there've been times when I, I don't get done by, by, by that, but that early. So that's the process. But as I said, knowing that these elements are there is important, but sometimes I'm here and I'm thinking about that. Sometimes I'm here and I'm thinking about that. You, you're, you, you don't, it's not always a linear progression, (laughs) Um, cause your mind is kind of bouncing around all the time with it. And not only that, my mind is, my mind is bouncing around right now. I have about 10 sermons in mind in the believer's armor that I know I'm going to, so I'm always looking and reading. And so you're, you just have to be able to multitask all that in your mind 
and have a good note-taking system. I use Word and Evernote, um, and it's, it's probably always evolving and changing. I wish it was a, a complete package. So that was, I just gave you a semester of, of uh, humble X in about 20 minutes. Um, does this represent, those of you who preach weekly, is it fair to say this has a, this is a cousin at least to what you do? Yeah, I hope so. I hope it's pretty, pretty obvious. The question is, if you work backwards, how do I get a full sermon and my outline and my proposition? And the answer is, the homiletic is connected to the hermeneutic, is how we get there. So um, questions or comments? You guys are, some of you preached longer than I have. Anything you want to add? Yes. At what point do you bring in commentaries to help you? Oh, that's a great question. At what point do you bring in commentaries? Um, in the purist system, probably, you know, right in here, here's the truth. Um, I, I, I try not to let commentaries influence me too early, but, um, last two Mondays ago, I had a, um, uh, a dentist appointment and, uh, uh, had my iPad with me had Logos on it, and I was sitting there, and I, I noodled on a couple of commentaries. I was reading before I had done all my exegesis. But I think I've done this enough to know to, that, you know, what, what Harold Honer is going to say is probably going to be pretty influential, but I still want to do my own diagram, my own outlining. So typically, I try to do the, the, my own work first, but I would be less than honest if I didn't say that sometimes I have access to read commentaries and articles and things that 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 before I get, get to do my own homework, you just have to be honest, in, exegetically honest enough to say, I'm going to try to hold that in, in suspension while I study. I mean, we do the same things. I mean, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a premillennialist, and I'm, I know when I read Revelation, I come with that in my mind. But I still try to say, let me read this as if it was the first time, and at least not doubt my theology, but not let my theology always be the tip of the spear and read it, you know, as a first-time reader. So best when you're, after you've done your own analysis, truth is sometimes if you got time to read at the dentist on Sunday, on Monday morning, I would read the commentary. So get a little head start. Just a, a thought on that. When we use the commentary, better to use them for the left side, not the right side. Hundred percent. Yeah. Well, oh, really, really good, really important question. Is it important to use commentaries for the left side and right side? I would say yes, but it depends on the kind of commentary. Harold Honer, whose magisterial work on Ephesians, I'm doing Ephesians right now. I have to read him last because if I read him first, I'm like, okay, I'm stupid. Uh, I mean, <laughs> there's nothing else. There's nothing else to really add to this. Um, and he's read everybody, so he will help me over here, but. James Boyce, which is, or, or, or MacArthur, those are mostly transcripts of their sermons. That's mostly this side. So it, a lot of it is you got to know what kind of commentary you're dealing with when you read it, because it will inform the left side or the right side. But I, I know when I'm talking, when I'm reading Jim Boyce or, or MacArthur, that they've done this. I don't always agree with that, um, but, but I understand what kind of you know, commentary it is. So, yeah, super important. Yes, sir. So you mentioned you do this. You gave us your days, and that's what it's a practical question. 
how many sermons are you preaching a week and how do you weight that out? Because can you apply this yeah. if it's full hours to multiple? You know what I'm saying? I, I do, yeah. Before, uh, I have two main teaching slots a week. Um, I have a men's group that I uh, uh, do on Wednesday morning and I and we have Sunday morning. Um, and we used, before COVID, we had Sunday nights and then we got into care groups on Sunday nights. It's a whole thing. So we're not doing Sunday nights right now. Um, but back before COVID, I had three a week, Wednesday morning, Sunday morning, Sunday night. And for those, it was just because of the nature of the accent our church puts on it. And this is probably theologically subjective or subjectively theological, um, but uh, probably my day is broken into half days, you know, morning, afternoon, morning. Three half days, so a day and a half was, was my Sunday morning. Um, and then probably a little more than a half day for the other two. So, and those half day increments could be two hours in here, three hours. It doesn't, you guys know needings and everything else that happens in, in the flow. Uh, but Sunday morning got priority. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The reason I'm 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 hesitating is I I, I don't I don't know that it's the same every week. You said it. The, the nature of the text. Think about this. Um, your people. Most commentaries really care about what the text meant. Your people really care about what the text means. You're the bridge between both. And so you are at one time book reporter and um, helper of their, of their souls. So you're, you're, you're doing both. Um, this, the left side always influences the, the right side. That my first, I think our first most important task is to take them back into that original context where they, they are so familiar with the temple of Artemis when I'm talking about this, these powers that Paul is, is um, um, uh, combating in, in, in Ephesians 6, 10 to 18. And because there's a context that he's dumping all this. He didn't do it to the Colossians or, or to the Romans. He's and I know it may be a circular letter, but I think it's primarily to the Ephesians. I'll give you a lot of, I keep getting off on tangents. Anyway, um, so, but we ought to be so good at describing Ephesus that they know what the humidity was that day in Ephesus. But to bring that timeless truth into today where they know before they walk out to the parking lot, this is what I think the Lord would have me do with this. So, it's a, it's a long way of saying both. We have to be, um, I mean, what is our hermeneutic? You guys all know it. Literal, historical, grammatical, contextual. The historical is important, super important. So you're, that's why I think knowing the room, most of us care about those first 60 pages of, of, a, of a 
of a commentary that gives all the background that everyone usually skips, that's important to us. So I want them to understand the historical, the authorial intent, that's the, that's the big crown jewel. What did the author mean by what the author said to the original audience? And you have to include enough original understanding, historical context to get that so that, because the goal is, listen, guys, <laughs> preaching is public hermeneutics. What you do in the pulpit, you're teaching them to do in the closet. So I don't want to just give them the synthesized, digested, you know, here's three ways to improve your marriage until they know. Actually, Paul was in a, in a very uh, patriarchal society. And um, isn't it interesting that, that he said, fathers, not mothers, or parents, fathers don't provoke your children to anger? Why would he say that? Because it was a particular temptation for a patriarch and a patriarchal society to do that. Now, I'm sure it's tempting to, for mothers as well today too, but I want them to know there's, there's a reason that God said what he said, the way he said it, to the people he said it, and that's, that's really important. So we have to be good historians. That's, that's where we're doing a lot of this work over here. By the way, this synthesizing the sermon's content, that's where I'm getting introduction, conclusion, transitions, um, illustrations, um, um, applications. That's, that's where that, that gets piped in, but you're also thinking about that <laughs> at every, every box too. Uh, myself, I'm speaking personally, I, I do okay on the left side. It's the right side. It's interesting you said that because I was going to ask, almost everybody I've ever talked to in this will say, I'm drawn to this side or I'm drawn to that side. And, and, and I think we all have a natural bent toward that. Uh, you have some people who just hemorrhage application. They're just so good at saying this is what it would, but they're not always telling us why. And some people who can really do well on this and you kind of leave and go to the parking lot going, that was really good about Paul at Troas, but what about me? So. Um, I think recognizing that is super important and then working hard at the other side. And, and I should have dotted lines right here, knowing that everything that I've said over here has a corresponding relationship with what I'm going to say to the people help, helps me. Uh, I, I tend to, I'm like you, I geek out. I love this side and just, man, you know, get me a Starbucks with my ear, earphones and and my Lagos and three commentaries and, and Harold Honer. Um, who, who, if you haven't, if you haven't, if you're doing Ephesians and you haven't met Harold Honer, please meet him. Um, uh, and I can just have fun, but I have to think of um, you know, Ginger and and uh, this this married couple. And I mean, you're all, I hope you're always thinking about the people in your church when you're preparing your sermons. You know, some people say, I just felt like you were preaching right at me. I just want to say, I was. <laughs> so, I, but I, I completely identify with that. And it just, it's just learning to work hard at those. Um, what's helped me, I'm going to give you, get you way in the weeds right now, is knowing this, is to listen to guys who are like this. One of the guys who's really helped me on this side is Alistair Begg. Because, well, first of all, he is a 
unfair Scottish accent. It's just <laughs> not fair. But he has a way of connecting these sides that's, and, and actually Charles Swindoll. Honestly, MacArthur is really good over here. This is, this is his wheelhouse. This is the lane he drives in. And he's not bad over here, but this is where you really want it. But if you listen to Swindoll, you, you hear that this is where he, his accent is. So listening to guys who can help um, is, has been a real blessing to me. So, yeah, four minutes. Um, it, it makes sense that error on the left side comes with the wrong interpretation. So you really want to take it serious. On the right side, sometimes the error of like wrong application or over application <laughs> is something I've thought through. And I'm, I'm not laughing at you. I'm, I'm laughing with you. Yeah. Have you... If you haven't read it, it's on the internet, you can Google it. You need to read the article by um, Haddon Robinson called The Heresy of Application. How many of you ever known, know that article? It's exceptional where he deals with that exact issue. And he says, we're not running to do self-help talks. You know, if you have, if you run out of time, if you have three funerals and a wedding like I did one week, if you give them this side, then you've given their soul the data that the Holy Spirit can use for that side, even if you don't get to the full. But if you just say, you know, here's three ways to love your wife, uh, get her roses, uh, buy her chocolate or whatever, and you just do the application. I mean, I, uh, my wife told me about two years into our marriage, she says, honey, stop buying me flowers. I don't like them. <laughs> they, they, they die. I, I would rather have, you know, uh, uh, an Amazon gift card or something. It, it was like, what, a, what about the romance? <laughs> but it was really helpful. So you got to be careful with application. Um, because what if you're, if you over apply without giving them the left side, you're, you're, you, you have a great danger of not applying to some people. What if you're doing, um, uh, for the spirit, you come to self-control, <clears throat> and you say, "Here's a here's one. You you want to uh, get a bowl of ice cream if you love ice cream, and you eat all of it except for that last bite, and then you watch that last bite melt, and you say, I have power over you. You don't have power over me.' And everybody goes, <gasps> except the lactose intolerant kid on the third row. <laughs> he can't have ice cream." Got to be careful when you're applying that you're not always talking to the businessman or you're forgetting the, 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 the work, stay-at-home mom or the, the high schooler or the teenager. Be careful over applying. And, and you also, you have to make sure you're getting the timeless truth that will apply. For example, Ephesians 5.18. Don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. Okay, well, there were no such thing as distilled beverages during Paul's time, so it's okay to get drunk with whiskey. What's the principle? Don't be inebriated. So does that apply to LSD and does it apply to marijuana? And someone could push back and say, no, because that's not what the left side says. No, there's a principle. And that's where this is, this is what we're looking for in everything. What's the timeless truth that applied to them and will apply to us? So uh, yeah, application, be careful. And you, you look that article up. It's also in his, in the, uh, in that big book I'm preaching that he uh, edited, uh, The Heresy of Application. But I know it's 
and a bunch of places online. One more, and then we'll go. Or if you don't have it, we'll go. Guys, let me encourage you with one last thing. Um, in Salvation of Souls by George Marsden, where he has a compilation of Edwards, this should encourage you. This, this was so meaningful to me. Mark, this is Marsden he's writing. He says, in the midst of the debates over the Great Awakening, Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, made a revealing comment about the effects of preaching. This will be humbling. During intense periods of awakening, evangelists often preached to the same audience daily or even more frequently. Opponents of the awakening argued that people could not possibly remember what they heard in all these sermons. Edwards responded that, listen to this, the main benefit that is obtained by preaching is by impression made upon the mind in the time of it, the sermon, and not, listen to this, not by the effect that arises afterwards by a remembrance of what was delivered. What? This is John, one of the greatest preachers who's ever preached. Marsden says, preaching, in other words, should be designed primarily to awaken, to shake people out of their blind slumbers in uh, the addictive comforts of their sins. Though only God can give them new eyes to see, preaching should be designed to jolt the unconverted or, con or the converted who doze back into their sins, as all do, in recognition of their true estate. Just remember, your best illustrations or your, 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 your best outline, they're Dixie cups that people are drinking from and they're going to throw them away. Did they get a vision of a great, this is Edwards, of a great and mighty and powerful and uh, uh, sustaining, sufficient God and his word? And sometimes I think we need to remember what one of the most intricate preachers I've ever read, Jonathan Edwards said, are you giving them a big vision of God? That's Edwards who said that. That's encouraging to me. So big God, sinful man, answer is Christ.